Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, the Chinese billionaire dubbed Mr Wolf, who pioneered exports of Kiwi thoroughbreds to Inner Mongolia. We introduced you to Mr Wolf. Now, he's the guy that charted whole triple sevens to cart his horses around the world, and he blew everyone away at New Zealand's Thoroughbred Racing Awards with four big gongs. He's made his fortune in fast food. Now he's spending plenty of it on fast horses. Kiwi horses. That's not the only thing that put Lin Lung in the headlines. He was also at the centre of the foreign political donations row. It comes after allegations emerged about a National Party minister's involvement in a six-figure donation from a Chinese billionaire. But now his New Zealand business is in receivership and the horse flights are, well, up in the air. Today, the rise and fall of Lin Lung's Inner Mongolia rider horse industry and what it means for our thoroughbred exports to China. It was pretty surreal, to be honest. This is Andrew Birch, Chief Executive of New Zealand Thoroughbred Marketing, who was first introduced to Lin Lung's plan 10 years ago. From one minute you were looking on the map, wondering where Inner Mongolia was, to then travelling to some of these places, and it kind of opened up a whole new world of opportunities um, to see how advanced they actually were. On my first foray to Inner Mongolia in 2012, I was at a little provincial racetrack and I turned around and some of the senior stewards from the Hong Kong Jockey Club were there. They, they were looking for, you know, capable staff and they'd identified this part of northern China that was very pro-horses and, you know, where they could find some some natural and skilled horse people. So, yeah, it was it was quite mind-blowing to think of the possibilities. Of course... Having worked for New Zealand Thoroughbred Marketing for the best part of 10 years now and worked for a guy called Joe Walls before me, he'd told me stories dating back 30 years ago of what they thought might come from China. So you never really got too far ahead of yourself, particularly knowing that there's no legalised gambling in China, which is basically the, um, the funding mechanism for every other part of the world. But it's been the purchase of more than a 1,000 horses exported here to Inner Mongolia that has lifted the New Zealand racing industry at a crucial time. He certainly played a role in, I guess, um, attracting the attention of a bit of a sleeping giant in the mainland Chinese market. And when uh, Ling Lang came along, it certainly put New Zealand on the map as a destination, an export destination for our thoroughbreds, horses of all levels as well, ages, you know, pedigrees, price points. So I wouldn't say that by any stretch of the imagination that it had saved the New Zealand breeding industry, but it, it was certainly a, a useful avenue. So when you say he came along, he came to New Zealand round about 2012? Yeah, that's right. So it would have been mid-2012, when I first had contact from an associate of Mr Lang's, um, a lady that worked for a veterinary supplies company in Cambridge, and she mentioned that an associate of hers from Inner Mongolia was keen on sourcing some, some at the time, infoal broodmares for Inner Mongolia, principally because the resulting foals could race as local Chinese breads, whereas the international horses were limited in which races they could contest. And also I would say New Zealand's free trade agreement with China was a bit of a draw card over other nations at the time. 
So that brought down a lot of those barriers that make it difficult to shift livestock and, and have those trade links going on. This is Paul Macbeth, acting editor of Business Desk. And just a warning, it sounds like he's in Inner Mongolia himself. Actually, he's just down the road in Auckland. Just by having that free trade agreement, you introduced um, uh, the opportunity for people to have a look at a market that they would not necessarily have thought about. I mean, prior to 2008, uh, and, and even into the 2010s, uh, I spent a bit of time in Shanghai in 2015 or so, New Zealand was just known for having a lot of sheep, um, even though you know, we were a massive exporter of infant formula and dairy products to China, it was still the sheep that was our reputation. So that shift from 2008 onwards, and in a closed economy that China had been, um, you know, enabling those customs links to, to free up made it easier for him to start thinking about New Zealand as, as an opportunity to, to find horses here and, and take them. Um, take them overseas, take them abroad. Other export nations, principally Australia at the time, didn't have the same same deal. So it was quite quite an alluring point for these horses. And um, yeah, it would have been just a handful of months after that initial conversation with his associate that that Langlin arrived in New Zealand, sort of surrounded by, I guess, his people. He'd previously had. Uh, experience as a racehorse owner in Macau and he brought out a, a couple of experienced horse people from Macau that initially helped him to identify and source the horses and they quickly realised that they had to change tack when it came to sourcing infoal broodmares because we were creeping closer to the New Zealand breeding season in the spring and so the infoal mares, they would have had to source them probably another six to eight months later because you, you just couldn't send mares that were that heavily pregnant on a plane to China. And was that his first time in Auckland in 2012, in New Zealand, I should say? As far as I'm aware, that was his first foray. And along with his um, advisors, they basically found their own way around a number of the stud farms. They picked up a stallion register, which has a list of the key contacts, picked up a racing calendar, which is a list of the key uh, racehorse trainers, and they really um, felt their own way around New Zealand, to be honest, and put together the first shipment of horses that went to China. And I guess what they were hoping to do was use it as a test point, that first shipment. They found that there were great efficiencies in doing a bulk shipment of horses as well. So they were able to get them to China, landed as at a lot more reasonable price than, say, buying, you know, five or six horses. Who would have thought Mongolia? <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly didn't. And it's fast becoming a major earner for our horse industry. They're absolutely mad on horses, absolutely passionate. How did you even get horses from New Zealand to Inner Mongolia? Uh, they fly, so they're chartered flights, and they would fly out of Auckland and arrive in Xinjiang in, in the northern part of China. From there, they were going to a quarantine station um, in a place called Korchin, which was also where Rider Horse had their, um, their main racing facility. And from there, they would also go to Mr Lang's stud farm, which was a, in a place called Jilin City. You've been to that farm? I've been to that farm in Jilin. The farm's a, a beautiful farm, actually. It's quite northern. It's up by the Korean border. 
you know, probably catered for a couple of hundred horses there. I've also been to his his racing facility in Korchin. The first track I went to was a smaller racetrack and within 24 months they were racing at a, a brand new facility up there in this provincial town of Korchin. You've got to remember that in Mongolia, the people are really passionate about their horses in general. So a lot of quality horse people that have grown up with horses and, um, and the races were were one of their pastimes. What is truly remarkable is the scale of this operation. They built a racetrack, a grandstand, a luxury hotel, the stabling areas, a veterinary clinic and a breeding program. Why would he be coming to New Zealand to buy horses here for a place, you know, that's known for its horses? Yeah, I guess the, the answer to that is that in New Zealand, we're breeding thoroughbred horses, a different type of horse to what they were breeding there in Mongolia. Also, you're exposing yourself to different international bloodlines and pedigrees, a different type of horse. You know, he was he was tapping into a, a quality product, basically. And while gambling on horse racing is still illegal in China, Mr Wolf is betting on that changing, telling me he's confident that China's leaders will make the right decision. And if that happens, Mr Wolf and New Zealand horse racing will both be on a winner. And a horse that uh, not only did he race, but also several other Chinese owners would race. So when he was bringing in uh, an aeroplane full of, of horses, they'd, they'd fly up with 80 thoroughbreds on the plane. He would also on-sell them to other key Chinese owners. Attracting rich Chinese to buy horses is also a key part of his plan. The Chinese rich people want to get involved because it's exciting, it's uh, luxury. And and many of them had their own racing stables. There are also other types of horses beyond thoroughbreds that were brought in. There were, there were standard bred horses, which, you know, go trotting. There were also miniature ponies. So China is becoming quite an equestrian place, really. I think since the advent of the, the Beijing Olympics, it really brought on their, their passion for horses. And so Lin Lang, he would come over here and select the horses and send them to Inner Mongolia. Did he have any involvement in actually breeding the horses here as well? He did breed some horses here himself. He, he um, eventually leased a stud farm called Highview Stud in the Waikato. He had involvement in some stallions, some broodmares that he kept and retained here. He also raced horses here in New Zealand, probably only small numbers really, but he had quite good success from the number of horses that he raced, most notably with a horse called Mongolian Khan, who won an Australian derby, a New Zealand derby, a Caulfield Cup. He was horse of the year in New Zealand. He he was favourite for a Melbourne Cup and unfortunately got sick on the eve of the Melbourne Cup and couldn't compete. But he had quite good success from limited number of horses that he raced. So how did this company tip into receivership? And can the business, potentially worth many millions of dollars, be revived? We'll look at that in a moment. But first, let's go back to Paul Macbeth and look at the other part of Lin Lung's story in New Zealand, the controversy over political donations by foreigners. The electoral rules limit foreign donations to a maximum of $1,500. But there's a giant loophole. If a foreigner owns a local company, they can donate as much as they want through that business, and that's exactly what's happened here. The first time that we all started becoming a little bit familiar with it was 
early 2010s, late 2010s even, and, and that was when it turned up as a, a, a substantial donor to the National Party. Lynn Lang, known as Mr Wolf, has been buying and racing New Zealand horses and exporting them for years. And it was at a 2016 summit in China that the then Trade Minister Todd McClay first met the Chinese billionaire months later. A $150,000 donation followed. And those uh, regular updates that the election Electoral Commission gives us on, on who's uh, giving money to the parties. Now the Prime Minister's publicly questioning that donation. Arguably what happened here was legal, um, but arguably it was equally outside the spirit of what our law intends when it comes to foreign donations. Why would he be making donations to the National Party? That's a, I mean, that's always a hard thing to get your head around. In China, business and politics are closer. And, I mean, you go to any sort of business event in China and, and there will be politicians at those events. And, and I mean, we, see, we do see the same sort of thing here in New Zealand. And we also see corporates make donations to political parties here. It, it's not necessarily uh, an attempt to, to curry favour, but uh, just the, the, you know, to show that you are engaged with um, the political process. Uh, I think you know, hard to hard for us to get our head around the the intent that goes behind making a political donation when it's not necessarily a sort of cultural value and, uh, and one that we expect. So when it happens, uh, it's kind of surprising. We've now stopped uh, or closed a, a, a way for uh, foreign nationals to make donations to New Zealand political parties. You know, this was just a, a way that was. Yeah, a little different um, and a bit surprising at the time. So what's happened? Why has this company gone into receivership? What do you know? Well, it, it, it came out of the blue to us because because this was just a unit of a larger entity. You would often think that, and you'd often see that the parent would come to play and, and just come to pick up uh, the slack if things are getting a bit tight. And the thing that um, the thing that stood out to us was that it was the Bank of China um, that requested the receivership. Now they they take security over assets and will sell those to make sure that they get paid. And with often these sorts of lenders, they will it'll be part of a much bigger um, banking facility. So it would cover not just the New Zealand business, but in theory, it should be covering other parts of the business and, and other parts of the world. So it, it had security, secured interests in livestock that were owned by the breeder. So, it, I mean, it can effectively just sell those horses that it, it hasn't been getting paid uh, its loan back and, and try to recoup it that way. We've talked to the receiver and... Um, yeah, you know, he he wasn't he, he didn't have too many reasons for why it why it got tipped into receivership. I mean, he was he was saying that um, they've been shipping horses to China, and COVID had made it slightly more difficult. So, but he's still working through the process at the moment. If this company is in receivership, does it mean that it hasn't been able to pay its bills and and pay its repay its loans? Well. The bank can call in a receiver if it hasn't been paid, but sometimes there are other covenants, uh, you know, terms and conditions that don't get met, which wouldn't necessarily be a missed payment, but would uh, be the same sort of default. 
So they can call in the receiver when there's a default in the terms of their agreement. So as an outsider looking in, we didn't get too much from the receiver about that detail. But it does look like a bill hasn't been paid or perhaps they might not have had enough money in the bank or, or as, a, as a deposit type thing in case something, something went awry. But it, it looks like there's been a missed bill. So now they're in the process of selling the assets, including the horses, and then what, wind up the business? Not necessarily. I mean, a receivership doesn't always end in the ultimate liquidation of a company. It's basically the point where someone who's got a secured debt, uh, you know, a, a debt owed by that company, which they've got um, secured by some assets in there, can grab those assets and say, look, you said you were going to repay me. Uh, that hasn't happened. I'm going to, I can't uh, take ownership of these assets, but I can take control of them and have them sold so I get repaid. Um, once that debt's settled, the, the business is back in your hands, but for the time being, uh, I'm going to be uh, running the running the show right now. It could end up going into liquidation if, if it ends up just being a, a shell after, um, after the bank sort of takes its cut. But, uh, you know, a little too early to say right now. But but Lin Lang could start up the business again. Potentially he could, but you know we've we've changed our laws around um, starting new businesses that were effectively doing the same thing uh, to avoid paying your debt, mainly to prevent uh, people uh, creditors getting left out in the cold if uh, they don't get their debts paid and and um, giving. People the the opportunity to sidestep paying their bills. Does Mr. Lang own this company outright? Yes, it's under his control. The difficulty, of course, is when you start getting into overseas entities being the shareholders of New Zealand companies. We've only got limited limited insight into that. So, while for all intents and purposes we understand uh, someone to be the the sole owner. No, they might have silent partners, they might have other partners, we just simply don't know. And that, that's also something which we're trying to change at the moment. What's happened, Andrew, you know, the company going into receivership, this is related to COVID? Look, I couldn't really say, Sharon, I, I don't know if it's purely COVID related, um, but obviously exports to China have been at a standstill since March 2020, since COVID hit. And the key reason for that is that we haven't been able to get grooms or the horse handlers onto the aircraft that would travel up to China and they certainly haven't been able to transit or go in and out of China. What do you think is going to happen in terms of being able to send our horses there? I think we're obviously at the mercy of of their policies uh, regarding COVID-19. They've gone for a a zero tolerance of COVID-19 right now, which probably means that in the short term, I, I can't see grooms being able to get on, on aircrafts and travel horses up there. But eventually it will open up and I can envisage that there will be demand once again into the future for New Zealand horses to go to what is a, a new and emerging and growing market. There's some serious players on the world stage now that have emanated from China these are people that are, are now starting to race horses beyond uh, the Chinese shores, but also have significant investment within China. 
We only saw last week there was a horse sale at the Gold Coast where the leading purchaser was a mainland Chinese buyer, Yusheng Zhang, who spent the best part of $30 million buying world-class broodmares. So it really is um, an emerging market. And Lin Lang, what about his connections with New Zealand? I'm not really sure what the future holds for uh, Lin Lang's connection to New Zealand. I guess, Sharon, at this stage, I'm not really sure if Rider Horse will be bouncing back post-COVID or not. Your guess is kind of as good as mine. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Flo Wilson and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Paul Macbeth and Andrew Birch. Mā te wā.